But, um, that's the new tune, RUF, uh, Reformed University Fellowship uh, hymnal put to it. I want you to turn with me, if you would, to Exodus chapter 18. <clears throat> Exodus 18, we're going to read verses 12 through 27. <clears throat> this is the inerrant word of God. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and other sacrifices to offer to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. And so it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. So when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, What is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a difficulty, they come to me, and I judge between one and another, and I make known the statutes of God and his loss. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, The thing that you do is not good. Both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out, for this thing is too much for you. You are not able to perform it by yourself. Listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel, and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people so that you may bring the difficulties to God, and you shall teach them the statutes and the laws and show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens." And let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge. So it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing, and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure, and all this people will also go to their place in peace. So Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law, and they did all that he had said. And Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people. Rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. So they judged the people at all times. The hard cases they brought to Moses, but they judged every small case themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went his way to his own land. Amen. Father God, we come to you, and uh, it is our desire to learn what it means to tremble at your word. I pray that we would reverence your word, that we would love it, that we would live it out. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would give us the empowering to be able to be sanctified in terms of it. I pray that you would anoint my lips and that you would enable me faithfully to preach your word and, Father, each one of us to embrace it and to rejoice in it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> There are probably going to be a lot of changes in the next year or so, and I wanted to begin preparing the people for some of those changes, and so we've had this little mini-series. We started several weeks ago looking at faith, the nature of faith, its challenges, because I am convinced our faith is going to be stretched in this next year. And then we looked at guidance. What is it? You know, what, what does the scripture mean when we're to fast and pray, you know, and seek God's guidance with regard to officers? And today I want to look at the absolute imperative of having a decentralized church. Now, right from the beginning of this church, we've tried to decentralize by raising up uh, lay leadership. 
But until we get elders in place, uh, there are some things that will always be centralized and inefficiently done, maybe not done at all, because there are some things we simply cannot delegate uh, to anybody other than to, to officers. And so in my mind, there's a, an urgency to having multiple officers, whether it's going to be teaching elders or ruling elders or hopefully a combination of both. And so the next two or three sermons are going to be dealing with the need for, the qualifications, and the process of choosing uh, elders. And Exodus 18 may seem like a little bit of a strange place to start. It really is not. If you read uh, Dr. Robert Kerr's um, uh, History of Presbyterianism, he starts at Exodus 18. A number of other books uh, do so as well. And the reason for that is that the New Testament did not invent a brand new form of church government. Uh, it uh, simply took over the synagogue system that was graded courts of, of um, uh, local synagogues and pres city presbytery synods and uh, the general assembly. And in this, the OPC is maybe a little bit closer to uh, the Bible here than the PCA is. But in any case, we're going to look at what the, the, the Old Testament system was. Uh, a lot of Presbyterian books, they just look at the New Testament. And it's clearly there, but... We're whole Bible Christians, right? And we want to look at the, at the foundations. There's other passages like Numbers 11 that deal with the delegated assembly at the general assembly level, what they called the Sanhedrin, uh, 70 elders. But Exodus 18 is key, I think, to undermining a centralized ministry. Centralization is the death knell of not only efficiency, but I think a, a spiritually alive congregation. I had to cut a pile of material out of the sermon as I was going through it yesterday and trying to stream, streamline it. And uh, so I'm going to mostly cut out uh, point number one uh, altogether. It's just dealing with, there are two different approaches to interpreting this. The Episcopalians interpret one way, Presbyterians interpret it another way. I think the Presbyterian exegesis wins hands down. And it's fascinating material to me. I think it might be a little bit heavy uh, for this morning. I can uh, share some of that with you. But really, I think you can figure point one out for yourself if you look at the chart on the back, the diagram, in your handouts. And secondly, if you keep three points in mind. First point is that this is not a description of all of the work of the elders. It's just describing, describing one little slice of work that they were engaged in, namely judging. In other words, it's looking at the church through the eyes of courts, the church courts. How do we deal with that? Well, once you understand that, a lot of other problems are solved up. Second, Verse 26 makes clear that conflicts were always settled at the lowest possible level. You know, like Matthew 18, within the church, they're settled at the lowest uh, common uh, level, you know, one-on-one, -on -one, uh, uh, preferably, and I shouldn't even get to know a lot of the problems because you've approached the person, they've repented, and they've dealt with the, the issues, right? Well, here it says it's at the lowest level. It's not a top-down bureaucracy where everything is being micromanaged. Third point, verses 22 and 26 make clear that the rulers judge those cases jointly. It's continually rulers, plural, over various units, plural. He's talking about uh, courts there. And so if you keep those three points in mind, that it's plural elders who are judging a case and the other points that I looked at, all of, everything else should fall into place. So I'm going to dive straight into the heart of the matter, which is point number two. 
And that is that any church, doesn't matter how good your system is, any church can have a tendency to become centralized. And let's look at some of the problems that flow from that. First problem is an inefficient use of time. Verse 13 says, And so it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. This was incredibly time-consuming for Moses, and it kept him from doing other important jobs. But think of how time-consuming it was for the poor blokes who were waiting in line uh, all of this time. They weren't able to do anything else uh, effectively. And this is a problem with any kind of centralized government, whether it's civil government or church government. You can see it in Washington, D.C. You can see it in Moscow. You can see it in various churches as well. Centralization uh, does not work. And so Jethro rightly asks in verse 14, uh, what is this thing that you're doing for the people? Why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? And sometimes it takes an outsider coming in and talking to the pastor in session and says, what are you guys doing? You know, how come you feel like your fingers have to be in absolutely everything? How come you're micromanaging? This is a waste of your talents, and it's also a waste of the gifts of the people. He says, you shouldn't be working like this. And that's why I think ordinarily it should be a team that plants a church. Now, there, uh, Paul always planted with a team. Uh, and there are a couple of examples in the Old Testament of a church being established uh, just uh, solo with one person working. But boy, it's a much more difficult process to work through because one person cannot do all of the counseling and all of the discipling and all of the other issues that, that a whole team working together uh, would be able to do. Um, and <laughs> in this church, because we've started just with one pastor and we don't have a session, uh, there are a lot of things I'm not able to delegate to the people. So what happens? There's some centralization. Uh, there's some inefficiency. Uh, I work long hours, and some of you are frustrated because of having to some degree an inaccessible pastor. And I think we've been able to solve a lot of those issues in, in various ways. I think we've done fairly well, and you just think of the Pareto rule. The Pareto rule does not rule in this church, thank the Lord. Uh, most churches, 20% of the people do 80% of the work, and in this church, it's a much higher statistic, and most of the families are involved in some kind of a ministry or another. But the point is, verses 13 through 14 say, when you've got centralization, automatically you can guarantee there's going to be an inefficiency of time. Second problem with a centralized um, uh, church is that it preempts the development of new leadership. Look at verse 14. So when... Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people. And later he says, why do you alone sit? Emphasis on the word alone. Uh, why do you alone sit? Well, I can think of uh, uh, a good reason why some of the people would not want to be nominated to be a helper of Moses when you see the enormous workload that no Moses uh, had upon him. And uh, this may... Uh, be because, well, in part, he was not modeling good leadership. Um, people were scared off from being uh, nominated, per, for, uh, perhaps, because they saw how hard he was working, and they didn't want to get worn out. And I suspect that some of you, when you've been approached and people have said, may I nominate you to the office of elder? May I nominate you to the office of deacon? You're thinking, are you crazy? 
<laughs> Look at Phil. You know how, how hard he works, all the hours he works. I don't want to be involved in that kind of a thing. There's just too much involved in being, in, in being an officer. And so that's one reason. Even though I think we've been fairly good at decentralizing, raising up lay leadership where possible, a lack of division of labor has me working too many hours. Another reason is that Moses was so busy counseling, he couldn't train new counselors. He was so busy judging, he couldn't raise up new judges. Uh, and so the very thing that could free up his time in the future was being preempted by the way in which he was handling things. A third reason why point B is true is that leaders have a tendency to micromanage because of fear that uh, things won't be done by others as well as they themselves would be able to do it. Now, I don't have that problem. I'm gladly delegating things to others. But some of you may have that problem as to why you're not willing to nominate others. You might think, well, there isn't really anybody that could do things as well as Phil Kaiser. Well, let me tell you something. If we don't start delegating authority and delegating responsibilities, anybody's going to be able to do it better than Phil Kaiser will do it. And uh, we, shouldn't, uh, uh, we shouldn't be uh, having those kinds of expectations, where sometimes it's the fear of the leadership of relinquishing authority, and that was the case with Joshua, and we'll be looking at that later on. In this congregation, I have a feeling it's the fear of the congregation thinking, you know, will people be able to match up to what we have expectations of in Phil? And uh, so whatever the motives might be, it preempts development of new leadership. A third problem with a centralized church is the tyranny of the urgent. And this is especially a problem for the, the pastor in the session. The bigger the church grows, the more work that they have. And so when Jethro asks him, why are you doing this? Moses responds in verse 15, because the people come to me. <laughs> he says, why are you doing it? Well, the people are coming to me. Uh, what can I do? I can't turn them around. And this is a perpetual struggle in any kind of work. Doesn't matter where you're at and your family. You may have plans, you know, to be doing some important task and it keeps getting postponed and postponed and postponed because, you know, the children are needing your attention and somebody's asked you a favor to do a job and you're getting calls from the church and in other places like that. And it's very easy to be taken off track and be nickeled and dimed to death because you have not anchored the important things right into your schedule. And this is really important for me. Uh, uh, the tyranny, the urgent, sometimes does um, get me off track. And I have to continually remind myself, no, these are the things that I need to be about. And so Moses, in effect, is telling, uh, Jethro, in effect, is telling Moses, don't work harder, work smarter. Uh, you need to be delegating, you need to be training, you need to be involved in things that will free up your time down the road. And so what I need to do is make sure it's so anchored in my schedule, the urgent does not displace it. Now let me just depart from the outline briefly to let you know what four, these are not the only ones, but four of the most important tasks that I as a pastor can be involved in. And the first one is prayer. Verse 19 says, stand before God for the people so that you may bring the difficulties to God. I may not delegate prayer, okay? Now, hopefully everybody else is going to be involved in prayer as well, but this is one thing I may not delegate. I must be a man of prayer. And yet, what is the first thing that goes out of people's schedules when they become elders or deacons or when they become pastors? It's prayer that goes out. 
You look at the statistics of how many minutes a week the pastors and ruling elders pray, and it's sad. And so this is the first thing. This has to be anchored in the schedule. I must be a man of prayer. Secondly, I'm called by God to teach. And there are several verses on this, but look at verse 20. And you shall teach them the statutes and the laws and show them the way in which they must walk and the work that they must do. Now, it's been extremely hard for me to protect my time of preparation for teaching because there's so many things that need to uh, be done. But teaching is a calling that I may not relinquish, and I would be robbing you and I'd be robbing the kingdom if uh, I fail to put and invest the time needed into, into doing the teaching. And so this is another argument why we need division of labor. If you want solid teaching, you need to get me some elders. I need to get me some, a secretary and get me some teaching elder. We need to pray that God's finances would be able to uh, come in for this. Thirdly, I must be involved in the training and the deployment of leadership. What Moses was called to develop here was a team that could work together under his leadership. Uh, not solo workers who were doing their own, uh, own thing. There's a place in the scripture for solo workers. We talked about this in the elder training class. Prophets, for example, frequently were solo. And they almost needed to be solo. <laughs> uh, you know, the way they got beat up. Uh, but uh, people even there would come alongside of them and encourage them. But what he's doing here is not talking about solo ministry. He's talking about bringing a team together. And if you compare Deuteronomy 1 with Exodus 18, you'll see that the people have a part in choosing and electing the elders. And Moses here in Exodus 18 has a part in choosing them as well and in placing them, deploying them. Verse 21 emphasizes his selection. We're not told why or uh, on what basis he places one here and one over a hundred. We're not told, but it says here, Moreover, you shall select from all the people... Able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And so here's a situation where everyone is accountable. Numbers 11 indicates even Moses is accountable to the 70 elders. Everyone is uh, working together as a team, but there's accountability built in as well. So my duties involve prayer, teaching, oversight, in conjunction with the elders, and then finally counseling the tough cases that are brought to me. And that can be seen in verses 19, 22, and 26, and we'll look at that in a bit. And so those verses talk about division of labor, specialization of labor. If everyone tries to do you know, the same thing, and they try to do everything, as happens in many, in many sessions, then... Um, everyone is going to be driven by the same tyranny of the urgent. Now, this leads to the fourth main problem with a centralized church. It perpetuates the mistaken idea that the pastor is the only one who ministers. Um, That's exactly what we have in verse 15. Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. Now, here's the question. Is Moses the only wise person in that nation of several million people? (laughs) No way. He's not the only wise person. So why are the people always coming to Moses? Well, I think there's a tendency with people to not want to deal with, uh, you know, lower levels. They want to go to the top. You know, if you're in a store, I want to see the manager. You know, people don't want to deal with second best. We want to go to the top. And uh, what God is saying is people need to get used to thinking that you don't go to the pastor for everything. You go to the ruling elders. They're your shepherds. They're people who watch for your soul. 
It's not healthy to be dependent upon the pastor. In fact, I want you to turn with me to Numbers chapter 11, and we'll come back to Exodus 18. But Numbers 11 is where Moses sees his giftings and his abilities being transferred to 70 elders and God's anointing coming upon them. And uh, he is really thrilled with this, and you can see why he's thrilled with that, but he wants every Israelite to be a minister. Uh, Look at verse 17. Numbers 11, beginning at verse 17. Then I will come down and talk with you there. I will take of the spirit that is upon you and will put the same upon them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you that you may not bear it yourself alone. Now notice the purpose in the giving of the spirit. It's to share in his ministry. The last phrase, that you may not bear it yourself alone. Even though Moses is a higher profile than the other elders are, They are in ministry together with him. And I think it's so important to recognize, yes, there is a division of labor. Yes, there is specialization between teaching and ruling elders. But in the New Testament, they are all called shepherds. In the Old Testament, they are all called shepherds. Now look at verses 26 through 30. But two men who had remained in the camp, uh, had remained in the camp, the name of one was Eldad, the name of the other Medad, and the Spirit rested upon them. Now they were among those listed, but who had not gone out to the tabernacle, yet they prophesied in the camp. Now I want you to notice, first of all, that the, the giftings of the Spirit were poured out upon their lives only when the ministry opportunities opened up. And that's typically the way God works. He provides for us as we're ready to step into uh, new areas of, of responsibility. And the second thing I want you to notice is that even though these two were not with Moses, they were in the camp, they still were gifted by God. They were anointed by God. And so Moses' role is de-emphasized to some degree there. Now, Joshua is very protective of Moses' turf. He's afraid of relinquishing leadership. So take a look at verses 27 through 30. And a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. So Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, one of his choice men answered and said, Moses, my Lord, forbid them. And you know, there's many ways in which we forbid ministry. We forbid decentralization by our words, our actions, or even by failing to allow ministry opportunities to open up. Anyway, Moses says, are you zealous for my sake, margin jealous for my sake? Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Moses is saying that um, we should not see the elders as being the ministers. We should see the elders as being the equippers and all of the Israelites as being involved in ministry. Now, if God wants to give them all a prophetic gift, fine. If God wants to gift them in other ways, fine. But Moses is saying, don't be jealous about ministry. We're wanting to unleash ministry. It's the same thing that Ephesians 4 is talking about. It's a decentralization of ministry as far as possible. Okay, let's move on. I'm going to skip over some stuff here. Fifth problem with a centralized church is that it tends to focus only on the squeaky wheels. And unfortunately, I think that has been true in this church. Some of you guys have been neglected because you're healthy and strong, and I've been so overwhelmed with ministering to people who are, have all kinds of problems and, and needs in their lives. But take a look at verses uh, uh, Exodus 18. You know, look at 19.6, first of all. I should go back to the previous point. 
Exodus 19.6, he says, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Guess where that's quoted in the New Testament? Well, Revelation picks up on it and First Peter, you know. When Peter uh, talks about believers being a universal priesthood, he's quoting the Old Testament. A lot of people try to make out this is something revolutionary new in the, in the New Testament that now we're a revolutionary priesthood. No, this was taking from the Old Testament. It's always been a situation where God wanted the whole of Israel to be a kingdom of priests before them. But anyway, go back to 18 now. 18 and verse 16 on the squeaky wheels thing that I uh, started with. He says, when they have a difficulty, they come to me. When they have a difficulty, they come to me. Think of what would happen to shepherding if the only time there was any contact with the elders is during times when there's a problem. You would never have any of the positive ministry in people's lives. It's always putting out fires. That's not a healthy situation. Jethro's principle enables the positive ministry of the eldership to be working in discipleship uh, in the congregation instead of just uh, crisis uh, management. Now, uh, one of the ways that we've tried to alleviate this because there's not been time during the week is by having uh, opportunities for you guys to come to the pastor's house on Sunday afternoons. So anybody, any week, can have contact with the pastor. It's not maybe always the most ideal situation, because even there, it's like, oh, yeah, Travis is always talking to Phil. You know, I never get a chance to talk to him, right? <laughs> but, um, or somebody else is always talking, but, hey, Travis is a needy guy. But, no, we're, <laughs> we're well, we love talking. But if you guys have problems, you know, and you want to talk to the pastor on Sunday, that's a great opportunity. We hang out there till about 4, 4 o'clock or so. So we don't want it to be just for the squeaky wheels. Now, the sixth problem uh, with a centralized ministry is that ministers are worn out and yet their talents are underused. Verse 18 again. Both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out, for this thing is too much for you. You are not able to perform it by yourself. Moses could not have been working harder, and yet his gifts were not being effectively used. That was the problem. And before we get a building, I want to get more people resources. I want to get more people resources. And... By the way, if there's anybody that's not here that you recognize, make sure they get a tape of this because I want us all to be on the same page. Seventh problem is that people become frustrated and or fall through the cracks. Verse 13, so it was in the next day that Moses had to judge the people and the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. Can you imagine how frustrating it would be for these people be standing in line and the implication is they're still standing in line at evening. So they have to wait till the next day, and it's really hard to get access to him. Verse 18, both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out. Uh, you know, I'm sure some of the people didn't even bother to go to Moses. You know, they just thought, well, I can't bother him with my problem. It's not severe enough. And the Jethro principle took care of that. It did not take care of it by enabling people to come to Moses. And you need to completely get out of your head the idea that the pastor ministers equally to everybody. He cannot possibly, especially as the church grows larger. There needs to be decentralization. Um, and we need to set that aside. You're going to be much better 
shepherded when there is one elder per ten families, or even less, one elder, than if uh, a pastor is trying to shepherd 30 families. Uh, even Jesus, how many did he have? He had 12 families, right? 12 families that he ministered to. So those are the problems. What's the solution? Some people think the solution is, well, let's elect some more elders. That's not the solution. Because if you look at verse 12, you'll see they already had the elders in place. That was not the solution. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and other sacrifices to offer to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. All the elders. There were elders already in place when Jethro came to bring his complaint here. And um, yet they still have... Uh, they still have this, this issue of centralization. In fact, some of the most bureaucratic messes that I have seen have been in churches where there's a large eldership, but the whole session is trying to do the work of one, of one person. Or in other PCA churches, I know where elders, uh, they don't do anything except for meet once a month to get a report on what the pastor is doing and go tell the pastor to do more work, okay? <laughs> That's not the purpose of the elders, Right? This is a decentralization of work. So having elders by itself is not sufficient. Obviously, you need to have them. Nor is it enough to have godly, spirit-anointed elders. Most Jewish and Christian commentators believe that Numbers 11 had happened already. Okay? If you look at the chronologies and you see how they're all pulled together, most commentators believe Numbers 11 happened already, and that's the remarkable anointing of the 70 elders that we looked at. Now, let me read verses 16 through 17 of Numbers 11. So the Lord said to Moses, Gather to me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them. Bring them to the tabernacle of meeting, that they may stand there with you. Then I will come down and talk with you there. I will take of the spirit that is upon you, and I will put the same upon them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, that you may not bear it yourself alone. Ah, so God's already told Moses about what the solution is. God's already gifted and anointed and set apart some elders and yet, in fact, they just had communion together earlier on in the chapel, uh, uh, in the chapter up in the mountain. And yet, it's still a centralized bureaucracy there, even though they're godly, even though they're great men that he is, he is working with. Moses is still working his tail off. It's the same old, same old happening. Now, I don't know what the elders were doing at this point, but they weren't doing what God called them to do. And it sometimes may take elders saying the same thing to Phil Kaiser and saying, Phil, you need to let the elders do that. Phil, you need to let the deacons do that. Or let somebody else do that. You need to be focused on the things that God has gifted you to do. Okay? So sometimes it's not enough even to have those spirit-anointed uh, elders in place if the pastor is still doing things the way he should not be doing them. If Moses could fall into this pattern, you can bet your boots centralization is going to be easy to happen in our church as well. So this is, this is a philosophy. This is a philosophy of life that I am committed to that you guys need to, to hold to. A third... Well, first of all, it's not enough to have elders. Second, it's not enough to have good, spirit-anointed, and capable elders. Third, it's not enough to have a system in place. You can have a great system in place, but if the people don't buy into it, 
If they don't embrace it, you're still stuck. So Deuteronomy 1 is Moses' remembrance of these days. And here's how he words it when he looks back on what was happening here. He says, I spoke to you at that time saying, I alone am not able to bear you. Choose wise understanding and knowledgeable men from among your tribes, and I will make them heads over you. And you answered me and said, the thing which you have told us to do is good. They embrace the plan. They proceed to choose these leaders. And he goes on in verse 15. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and knowledgeable men, and made them heads over you, leaders of thousands, leaders of hundreds, leaders of fifties, leaders of tens, and officers for your tribes. So they were elected by the people, and Moses organized them in a way in which they would be the most efficient and do the most good uh, for the congregation of Israel. Some he made judges, just as is described in uh, chapter 18. Others, uh, officers who were involved in other work, but it was because the people embraced the plan. Now, obviously, you've got to be comfortable with who rules over you. That's why you vote, right? You've got to be comfortable with who rules over you. But I hope you can see the importance of the elections coming up and that you will embrace the plan. We're getting close to having 30 families. I think it's around 27 families in attendance at the church here. And then we've got several other families that uh, uh, I'm supposed to be overseeing up in Oakland, Nebraska. And if you use the mathematics of Jethro, that means we need to have three ruling elders in this place and we need to have another ruling elder up in Oakland. That's the math of, uh, of Jethro. And uh, if we can't move fast enough to be able to do that, you know, we may have to skin the cat other ways and have, you know, teaching elders come in or something or other. But, um, and by the way, I don't know if I've mentioned this to you before, um, there's been a number of pastors uh, who uh, have been interested in working together with us if it could work out sometime in the future. Four have said they will, they're willing to immediately drop their ministry and join with us if the Lord were to open up the, the, the finances. They are thrilled with the vision, and uh, they would love to be a part of the team. We'll have to see what the Lord works out. Fourth, it will require the pastor to relinquish some ministry. So you can have the previous three points in place, but if Moses wasn't willing to stop doing his work, they'd still be in the same mess. And so you got ruling elders who have freed up Moses from doing this work over here, and he says, oh, good, I'm freed up there, and he takes the same things onto his plate over here. That's not going to help. He needs to be freed up to do what he has been called uh, to do. And uh, I'm sure the people continued to come to Moses. They were used to coming to Moses. They wanted to come to Moses. Having a system in place is not going to stop their habit. What Moses has to do is to say, look, I've trained elder so-and-so to deal with precisely the issue that you've come to me for and send that person uh, to that elder. He had to train the people. He had to train the elders as well. And with officers in place, I, I will have to relinquish some ministries just as Moses did. And I think this is an area that's going to be very important for the elders to hold me accountable on. But this is precisely what is needed. If I'm to do what God has called me to do, if I'm to do it best, not only in the congregation, outside of the congregation as well, I'm very, very excited about the potential for relinquishing some ministries. Fifth, it will require lay officers of energy and enthusiasm, not committee voters, but task force workers. Verse 21 of chapter 18. He says, Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men. Able men. We're not talking 
uh, here about clergy. We're talking about lay people. The word in the Greek is laos, and in the Hebrew here, it's the same idea. Laos simply means uh, the people. And so these are representatives from the people. But secondly, they're called able. Hebrew is anshe hayil. Bush in his commentary says, anshe hayil, men of might or force. That is, men of vigorous, active, energetic character. See the import of the phrase explained in Genesis 47.6, where it is rendered men of activity, while in 1 Chronicles 26.6, it is rendered mighty men of valor. The leading sense is that of men of strong character, active, efficient men, possessing the qualities which in modern times we assign to those who are emphatically termed good businessmen. He's talking about people with an entrepreneurial spirit. A man, if we are to accomplish as a Gideon's army some of the things that the Lord has laid on our hearts, we're going to need men with that kind of an entrepreneurial spirit. F, it will require officers who can lay down their own agendas and burn with a passion for God's agendas. Verse 21 says they must be men who fear God. Now, the fear of God not only sets aside the fear of man, which is a great thing, but it also sets aside our own agendas because if you fear the Lord, you're burning for His cause. Your vision is broader than our own local church. Your vision is that God's kingdom would be extended to the ends of the earth. Next, they will need to be men who are driven by truth, it says here. Men who are not pragmatic, but who live by the word of God. Without that, we're constantly going to be tempted to compromise. Driven by truth. And then finally, it'll require officers who are not self-seeking. Verse 21 says... Hating covetousness. Man, what a team. What a team such men would make. What a difference I think a group like that could make. And that's the kind of team we need to be praying for. Not men who are in it for what they can get out of it. Not men who are, uh, are self-seeking, but who, who, you know, are not covetous. It's very strong. Who hate covetousness. Who are passionate for the things of God. I see David in the wilderness. You know, David is just a small little group of people. And yet, because of his vision, which was a captivating vision, because of his heart for the Lord, his self-sacrificing cause, he attracted men from all over. They flocked to him. And it's my prayer that the Lord would draw a team together in this church that would make a huge difference in this city. Um, were the people in David's uh, army perfect? No, they were not perfect. In fact, they had a lot of defects. And if you're waiting for a perfect crew to be elders, you're never going to get elders. But they did have these qualifications, and they were FAST men. Now, I use the acronym FAST in our eldership uh, training. FAST stands for Faithful, Available, Submissive, and Teachable. And so these mighty men of David, they were all of those. Now, what are the hoped-for results? First, verse 23 says, If you do this thing and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure. <laughs> and I think that's a pretty good cause, that the pastor will endure. He'll stick around for a long time. Uh, hopefully, that's your desire as well, that I'll be able to minister here long-term. I don't know what the Lord holds for the future, but I would love to have this to be the base of my uh, of my operations, of my ministry for the rest of my life. The second result is, and all this people will also go to their place in peace. Now, there is a difference of opinion as to what that means. Some people believe that this means that they will be able to go to their homes. 
and take dominion through their homes. In other words, they'll be able to minister to their families and through their families. And others say, no, the, the word place is not their home. The word place is Canaan. That's where they were supposed to go. So this will enable them to take the conquest of Canaan. Really, it makes no difference. Either way, it amounts to the same thing. The goal of officers is not to produce all kinds of programs that the people can flock to and be a part of. And that's the way many times it works. Instead of verse 23, where it says they will go to their place in peace, what they're doing is they're coming from their place to the church. And you've got all these programs and people aren't coming. And so the officers are twisting arms. Can't you serve on this? And won't you attend this? And making people feel guilty. And they don't really want to be a part of these programs. Now, that's not the issue. The goal of the officers is to equip families to take the dominion that God has placed upon their hearts. Okay? It's to be decentralized. God's going to lay on your hearts, and he already has, some of the types of ministries that he wants you to be involved in. So rather than me plugging you in, you know, as a, a square peg into a, a round hole, uh, I need to be discerning and saying, what is God burdening you for, and how can we network with you and synergize the, the church's resources to enable the church as a whole to be effective? And uh, I, I hope for... Forever, this church will continue to be streamlined, not program-oriented, uh, not program-driven, but family-driven. And uh, may the Lord prosper this vision to your peace. Amen. Father God, we thank you, thank you, thank you so much for the wisdom of your word. And Father, where we uh, fall short of the goals that your word says, forgive us and help us, Father, to have this kind of a decentralized ministry in the years to come. And I pray that you would raise up the ruling elders. You'd raise up the teaching elders and uh, those who could serve in the secretarial capacity and in other uh, uh, capacities. Father, we'd love to have a full-time paid ruling elder and a full-time paid deacon. Uh, we'd love, Father, to be able to, uh, to, to have some of these things that you have burdened uh, our hearts for, Father, to, to come to light as you uh, begin to open up the finances. And Father, by faith, we want to step into the areas that uh, you are leading in. And we pray, Father, that you would open up the windows of heaven and provide such finances and such support as would make a difference. Father, may we not be a church that's just ingrown, but may we be a church that the humanists in this city complain about, that we're turning the world upside down. Uh, Father, uh, we know that if the, all men speak well of us, there's something wrong that is going, uh, going on. And I just pray, Father, that we would make a difference, that we would be a formidable foe for Satan because we are walking in the Spirit and that it's not by our might nor by our strength, but by your Spirit that you do these things. I thank you, Father, so many times you used the weak and you used those who were inadequate to accomplish great things because they followed your principles in faith and they depended upon your Holy Spirit. I thank you for Gideon's army. I thank you, Father, that you took a Samson and you used just a tiny jawbone to slay the enemies. And I thank you, Father, you used a dry old stick in Moses' hand to part the waters. Father, you can use us no matter what our feeble resources may be. And I pray that you would use us and that the... Uh, the uh, 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 each of the families in this congregation would sense your calling upon them as to what slice of Canaan they are to conquer and settle into and take dominion of and uh, to uh, uh, pass on a heritage from generation to generation. 
Father, help us not to fail in the midst of doing and help us, Father, not to fail by failing to do. May we be an active people, but may we also be theologically driven. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.